left school uh, to be homeschooled. Um, there's a lot in that statement there. Uh, so I was graciously afforded the opportunity by the Baltimore County Public School System to find education elsewhere. Um, it was there, Hickey, uh, James B. Hickey Reform School. So I was homeschooled, and so one of the things I did was I went to uh, the local library, got a list of classics, and just started reading down through all the classics. That's just, I know, I'm a nerd, I'm a geek that way, and so, uh, but one of the ones I ran across was Alexander Dumas' series, The Three Musketeers, 20 Years After, and then The Man in the Iron Mask. And The Man in the Iron Mask, uh, captivating story, they've made it into a movie and TV series lots of times, and just the idea, the concept of this guy who's a prisoner, and there really was a prisoner. Uh, he had an iron mask imprisoned in France. And the question was always, what's his identity? And so Dumas took it as he was the twin brother of the king. And so rather than have twins fighting for the crown, identical twins, they put this guy in an iron mask and imprisoned away. And so he's really royalty not knowing that he's royalty. And that's the whole shtick of, of the story there. Well, there's a man in the Old Testament who really was royalty and reduced to ruin um, through no fault of his own. And not only is he reduced to ruin, but in the process of being reduced to ruin, uh, suffers a horrific injury uh, and is actually rendered paralyzed from the waist down. His legs don't work anymore. And so now he was a prince. And to put it in perspective, a few weeks ago, he'd have been like in the in the spot that Prince William occupied and that now Prince William's son occupies, Prince George, the, the grandson of the reigning king. And so he would have had all the power, all the things, every, all the, this is not working. Uh, so I'm going to turn this off and I'm just going to use the pulpit mic. So I'll give him a minute to switch that over. So uh, at least my wife who's home with a feverish child is watching. Hi, sweetie. Um, we'll turn that off. So there we go. All right. Um, and so here he would have had all the royalty, all the power, all the, uh, the benefits afforded to him. And now he's this semi-paralyzed um, nobody. He actually refers to himself like a dying dog uh, who lives in someone else's house. And, and don't think dogs of today who cross the Rainbow Bridge, right? They weren't pets back then to people. They were scavengers who wandered around, and when it was time to die, they crawled into an alley and died. In other words, it was a creature that no one cared about. They were a nuisance creature. And, and so this is who he says he is. His name's Mephibosheth. He's the grandson of King Saul. And so then there comes this moment when David, uh, the great enemy of Saul, although we know that David had a totally different perspective, but, but certainly for Saul and his household would have been viewed to some degrees as the enemy. He comes to power and he's looking to bless a descendant of Saul and specifically a descendant of his close friend, Jonathan. And so he finds out about Mephibosheth and he brings this dying dog, paralyzed guy with his infant son who has nothing, who has to just depend upon people for everything and anything. He brings him to the palace and he brings him in and he welcomes him in like a prince. And he says, from this point forward, I'm going to feed you and I'm going to clothe you and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you and your family and restore lands to you. And I'm going to have servants work the lands. And so he really raises him out of beggar status to once again, almost semi-royalty. That moment is one of the most glorious pictures, images that we have in the Old Testament 
of what salvation looks like. To be raised out of beggarly ruin, paralyzed, unable to help yourself, a dying dog, and to be raised up by a gracious king who owes you nothing, you deserve nothing, and yet he sets his affections upon you and he rescues you out of his own love and out of his own generosity. And it's this beautiful, beautiful, stunning image of what it's like to be reigned over by Jesus. And so that David is an imperfect Jesus. He's a, a shadow of the future Jesus. He's, he's an image, a foretelling of the future Jesus who comes. And that same way, these three chapters of Job, 29, 30, and 31, it's the last time Job will speak. After this, he makes a few exclamations, but this is it. You get to the end of these three chapters, and it's like Job's almost exhausted from speaking. He's done. The three friends don't say anything anymore. Bildad, Bildad Eliphaz, and Zophar. There's one other really young guy that has shown up here at some point, Elihu. He's going to wax eloquent, rebuke everybody, and then God's going to show up and say, I'm done with all of you talking. Now I got something to say. But this is it from Job. All of his sorrow, all of his suffering, his meditation on his condition has come to this point. And so these three chapters bring us to the, to the very brink of what is it like for a righteous person to be suffering puzzling pain, pain they don't deserve, suffering they have not earned, he's done nothing wrong. What is it like? Where does it drive them? And one of the things we've seen with Job is in all of the confusion and in all of the hurt, whether he realizes it or not, it keeps pushing him back to the Messiah that would come. And these three chapters out of the entire book of Job may give us the clearest image foreshadowing of the future reign of King Jesus than anywhere else in the book. They are stunning chapters. They are beautiful chapters. And we don't want to miss how God uses them in Job's life and in our life. And in the first one, the concept that we'll look at this morning just from Job 29 is this. Before we are ever satisfied in Jesus, we must first hunger for him. And nothing makes us hungry like suffering, right? Now, I, I have not ruined my appetite too many times, but my grandma used to always say, Steve, stop snacking. You don't want to ruin your, your dinner. You don't want to ruin your appetite, right? The whole idea was they keep snacking. You keep snacking as a kid, and you're not going to want to eat your dinner. And I'm actually convinced at this point in my life that spiritually, Lots and lots of people don't hunger for Jesus like they should. And, and I say lots of people, and you can think number one name on that list, Steve Johns, don't hunger for Jesus as they should because they're too satisfied somewhere else. And nothing makes you hungry like suffering. And so there, we already know there's a goodness there in that then. Um, and so we want to learn this morning from Job, how can the word and how can suffering bring us into closer relationship with King Jesus. Let me give you the structure of the chapter so you can see this even, so you at least understand. I, I always try to provide people a framework so that they can plug in what's going on. And so the way these chapters function for Job his chapter 29 is really a look backward for him. He's thinking about his past. And, and so for Job, he's thinking about what, how, how good it was, how wonderful it was. Uh, we're going to work our way through unpacking it that way, first from Job's perspective. And, and he really presents himself like a king, like a guy who reigned really, really well, right? We, we haven't had good options to vote for and my whole life like it feels like i was so excited to be able to turn 18 and vote and i haven't been excited about election since right um it's, it's like 
we, we feel like we have terrible options. We feel like we're constantly choosing the lesser of two evils. And everything is what it feels like. And Job pictures himself, as, as he looks to his past, he's this guy who was generous and just and kind and gracious and was able to bless people. And he really thinks of himself that way. Chapter 30, the whole chapter is about his suffering. And it's a look at the now. So you have a look at the past, then you have a look at the now. And it's like life rots. I'm in the middle of the sewer of suffering. This is terrible. I don't deserve it. I'm surrounded by, frankly, by losers who are constantly assailing me. Um, people that, that were worthless in society that had no respect, they even mock me. It, it's like, it's, this is crazy. It's a look at the now. And then in chapter 31, he really meditates on how he doesn't deserve any of this. And he's right, and God agrees with him. He didn't deserve any of this. He hasn't done anything to earn this pain, this suffering. He hasn't done anything to make life difficult, and yet here it is. And so what's interesting is when you study these chapters, you actually can reverse them with the life of Christ. And so chapter 29 for Job is a look back. Chapter 29 is the future ruling yet come reign of Jesus Christ. When he returned to the earth. I'm not a pet guy. Just not. I don't hate him. God bless you if you own him. Jesus loves animals. God loves animals. You should love animals too. I don't hate animals. I'm just not a pet guy. That's fine. But you know what? One day I'm going to ride a horse. And it's going to be in the army of Christ as he returns. To rule and reign. He came the first time as a suffering servant. The gospel of Mark depicts him most clearly that way. He will come back as a reigning and righteous king. To rule over all. And so it's a look ahead, and, and yet chapter 30, while it is all about Job's current suffering, it is unmistakable, as we will study through chapter 30 next week, that it is, it's like Jesus on the cross. Who mocks Jesus while he's on the cross? You've got the religious leaders, for sure. Uh, you have the surrounding Jews, absolutely. You have the Roman guards, but he's even mocked by other prisoners, the lowest of the low. And it's such a beautiful picture as Job talks about being mocked by the lowest of the low. Jesus was mocked by the lowest of the low. And so it's a picture of the cross. And then chapter 31, while it's Job saying, I didn't deserve this. Guess what chapter 31 is? Jesus suffered innocently. He is the lamb that was pure, that was slain from the foundation of the world, and he did nothing to deserve it. And so it's actually just an amazing structure that as you're traveling with Job, you start to begin to see and understand the Messiah. And so all we're, we're going to take one chapter a week because, frankly, I'll just be honest with you, I don't want to miss the images of Jesus. And, and, and if there's anything, there's anything that suffering, grieving people need is to be reminded of the presence and the power of Jesus. Um, maybe that should be the title for the next three weeks, the presence, power, and person of Jesus in the midst of your suffering. It's just one of those moments that, you know, that's why I guess you're written sermon for next week. And so how do we think through it? How do we understand it? This is the way we're going to unpack chapter 29. And so it is a longing for the past. It is this meditation of what's going to happen in my past. Now, I want to remind you, and we're going to start reading some of chapter 29 here in just a minute. Hang on. Uh, keep, keep, keep your britches on, right? Um, but in Ecclesiastes, some, it says something very interesting. You have three wisdom books. You've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Proverbs says this is the way life's supposed to work. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. You ring a nose, it brings forth blood. You shove a stone, it rocks back on you. You poke a bear, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat you. You grab an angry dog by its ears, it's going to bite you. That's all Proverbs wisdom, right? Um, then you get Ecclesiastes, and it says, yeah, but I'm doing that, and life's not satisfying to me. 
And so I've done it all. I've experienced it all. I've done all the good pleasure. I've built all the good things. I've had, I've had all the good food, all the good wine, all the good stuff of life I've done, and I'm still not satisfied. There's got to be something else. All this is a waste. This feels like a breath of air. Hevel is the Hebrew word, a sigh. Oh, this is pointless. You ever felt that way? I was driving with my daughter yesterday, and I, and I turned, turned, and I was thinking about something else, and I just sighed. And she's like, what's the matter, Dad? And I was like, why? She said, because you just sighed. Right? <sighs> Something else. And I, what I thought it was was another project I needed to get done. I was like, Ugh. And Ecclesiastes says that this, ultimately this life doesn't satisfy. And then Job, the wisdom literature, which is actually the first of the three written, basically says, what do you do when life doesn't seem to work the right way? You had all the Ecclesiastes stuff and you've done good, but you've gotten bad. And so Job begins to think backwards. Now, Ecclesiastes, though, says something very interesting to us in Ecclesiastes 7.10. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, for the good old days? Have you ever heard people say that before? Oh, the good old days. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says this. Now, remember, I just asked, have you heard somebody else say? So don't feel rebuked. Ecclesiastes 7.10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, that's a kind of a confrontational statement because I think we actually live in a lot in a culture where a lot of people want to say oh the good old days and Ecclesiastes tells us that's actually not a wise perspective but that's exactly what Job's doing so how do we wrestle through that well let me let me let me give you a few reasons why that's an unhelpful way to think now Ecclesiastes is presenting it this way that's an unhelpful comparison when you're thinking life stinks it was so much better back then Ecclesiastes is saying that's not a wise perspective. Let me give you three reasons why that is. Number one, your best days or the best days of old for you absolutely were worse for somebody else. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. It's like if anybody ever were to say to me, you know what, I wish we could do 2021 again. That was an amazing year. We came out of COVID. We finally get to see people again. Kids went back to school, praise Jesus, right? The economy began to recover. 2021. 2021, I was worried about my wife dying. So that might have been a good year for you. That's not a bad that's not that's a bad vintage for me. Like the reality is that for all of us, our good old days were always worse for someone else. So if we run around saying, oh, for the good old days, oh for the what what good old days, we will invariably do harm as we interact with other people. It's, not, it's just not wise. I'm not saying it's sinful. It's not wise, the way we think about it. So first of all, it's not wise that way. Secondarily, God frankly has set for us to look to the future. If we look to the past, what we should look to is ways we've seen God work. And so God repeatedly does that with the children of Israel. Uh, do you not remember how I part the Red Sea? Do you not remember how I fed you in the desert? Do you not remember water from the rock? Do you not remember my deliverance out of Egypt? Do you not remember the promise? Land? And so if you're going to look to the past, look to the good things God has done, not just how much better life was for you. And the reality is when you look back at all those things, guess what? He parted the Red Sea, but you stood at a Red Sea between an ocean and an army that was going to kill you. He fed you in the desert, but you stood in the desert with no water to drink and no food to eat. And then he provided for you. And so what's interesting is you wouldn't actually, someone who's thinking about the good old days actually isn't thinking typically about being hungry and afraid to be crushed by a foreign army. They're thinking about how they were at peace and at rest. But God has called us to constantly be moving forward with our eyes set on eternity and not set on the here and now and certainly not with our eyes fixed on the past. 
Every season of life brings its own joys and its own sorrows. Every season. I spend time with, I'm so thankful for the families in our church that have young children. I see your children and they run around and their joy and their delight. And I'm 48 and I'm saying, God bless you. I'm glad that happened to me 10 years ago. The funny thing is they look and they're like, man, I, I, I'm a little afraid of them becoming teenagers. But there are joys and blessings in every season. There just are. And God wants us to constantly be understanding and live that in the concept of time. Thirdly, thirdly, why it's not helpful to have these kinds of comparisons is because it tends to only increase your pain. It just does. You tend to start meditating and, and, and an unhelpful comparison. Life was better then. Look at it now. Uh, miserable. And actually, that's part of what Job does here, is it actually increases his suffering and his misery. So can there be a space to helpfully look at the past? Yes, absolutely, with an eye to see how God met you there. But don't ever think, now life rots from here forward, and it was so much better then, like somehow you can go back in time. That's just not helpful. Ecclesiastes tells us it's not wise. And so what Job meditates on here, what he thinks through, is about this past, but it does give us a picture of Jesus. But we've, let's filter it through Job's context first. First of all, as he thinks about it, he thinks about the affectionate relationships he had. Job 29, he says this, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. I want you to notice the first thing that Job goes to of why in his mind it was better in the past is because God loved me. The word he uses there for friendship, it's a unique word. It definitely means a depth of relational intimacy. Uh, the closest we're going to come to modern day is that's my bestie. That's my BFF. Um, it, it's just sigh, shy of soulmate. And so there, there's, no, there's no romantic affection here, but there is the deepest kind of affection for a friend. I was talking to a friend um, over Zoom this past week that I don't think I've physically seen for 16 years or more. And it was so funny because we were Zooming and immediately picked up where we had left off 16 years ago. And there just is a depth of relationship there. And, and so Job says, God was relationally connected to me. God loved me. God was my friend. He was with me. His light shone upon me, and I knew I had his favor and his blessing. And I wish it was like that, but he doesn't just stop there. He extends it to horizontal relational connection, right? So I had vertical relationship with God, but, but horizontally, my children were all around me. And, and again, it's another one of those moments where he uses some unique language here that points to more than just his own physical children, points to more than just his 10 sons and daughters. And, and when Job talks about the ministry he did, he had lots of ministry with orphans, and so it seems like Job's not just talking about his own 10 physical children, but any of the others he gathered around them. Job didn't perceive his servants as, as some distant employees. He didn't view these orphans just as some, you know, way for me to throw scraps to. He welcomed them into his home and he protected them. And so Job is now thinking about how much better it was when he had love of God and love of others. What's he got now? Three worthless friends. And the children of the shepherds that, that he's sitting out in this field somewhere, 
They go by and they make songs about him, mocking him. They throw rocks at him. They despise him. They hate him. This man who had community now is alone. And he understands his aloneness is first reflected by something has made God mad at me. If you ever spend time with someone who has suffered um, under an abusive parent, they will say phrases like this. If my own dad or if my own mom didn't love me or want me, how or would anyone else? You know, when we stand outside of those situations, we look at them and we want to say, it never had anything to do with you. That's a them problem, not a you problem. But you have to live in the reality, somebody very close to them that they've been hardwired by God to want their affection and their, their love and their approval has consistently and constantly told them for most, if not their whole life, you're not worth my love, acceptance, or approval. You aren't enough. Job's sitting here and it's like if God doesn't love him, and this is part of what his friends don't get, but if God doesn't love me anymore, what does it really matter? Of course, no one else is going to love me. How could anyone else even accept me? And so Job is thinking back to this better day when there was relational affection. And he goes on from that and he talks about grace for respect. What I mean by that is he's going to talk, and I'm going to read these verses in a moment, but I want you to know this headed into them. He had tremendous respect, but the way Job works it, he didn't think he earned it. It all came from God. Okay, so, so we'll unpack that in a moment here. But verse 6, he says this. Chapter 29. When my steps were washed with butter, which seems weird, but we'll talk about that in a moment, the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. That doesn't mean they ran away from him. That means they made a path for him. It's like a, a Navy captain or officer rushing down through a ship or through a submarine. Make a hole, make a hole, make a hole. Everybody gets out of the way. That's, it's a deferential, not, not a, an antagonistic. The aged rose and stood. Um, you know, if you ever walked up to somebody, maybe at a wedding reception or even in church, and it's an older person, they're sitting and they start to get up. No, you don't have to get up for me. Please, please don't. And so it's this respectful kind of moment. The princes refrained from talking, laid their hand on their mouths. We're having public discourse, conversation. Those guys don't want to say anything. The voice of the nobles was hushed. Their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. And so, literally, if we go back to verse 6, this, this kind of unique phrasing, when my steps were washed with butter, that doesn't sound too good, right? I grew up with Tom and Jerry. If you throw butter on the floor, somebody's hitting their head and having stars wrap around their head. That's, that's, you know, that's not what he means here, or a stone coming out with oil. If we were to put it in modern-day lingo, it would be like, the, I walked on roads made of cash, and my sidewalks oozed money like an ATM machine. Um, this is the kind of guy, I think I gave the illustration a number of months ago or weeks ago at this point. This would be like the guy that seems like nothing can ever go wrong for him, right? Um, he buys a car and it's totaled and you're like, oh, that's so sad. The insurance company gives him for some reason double what it was worth. So he buys two cars. He comes home, his house is burned to the ground. He's like, oh no, let's rebuild a house. They go to rebuild a new foundation and they discover oil. Like, that's what this guy's life is like. Like, nothing can go wrong for him. Um, and so Job is saying, everything goes right for me, but he pictures it in a way that it's not earned, right? 
It's not like you actually walk along and there's butter everywhere on his path. And every rock, his, 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 uh, his servants are out there picking rocks out of the, the field and every one of them is dripping pure olive oil that they have to drain into containers to sell. It's like just so obvious Job is saying, I didn't earn any of this. And so it's so interesting because Job's friends, remember the thinking was, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. They presume because Job had so much good, Job must have been doing so much good to earn the good. Job's perspective is, I may have worked hard, I may have been ambitious, I may have tried to be a good steward, but God gave me grace that led to respect. There's a humility there, isn't there? That's his perspective. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Job viewed it as the kindness of God. Nothing he put his hand to failed. And so the result of that is he's trusted, respected. He's given deference on decisions. People believe him. And it could not be further from how he's treated now. He goes on from there and he says, because of that though, he had effective ministry. He used these resources not for himself, but to bless others. Verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I, that, is, that sentence is tremendous to me, because whenever God wanted to depict the most vulnerable, he always goes after two groups, widows and orphans. You care for true religion is with what you care for widows and orphans and widows and orphans. why because they've lost protection they've lost companionship there's so much loss how how could you do ministry to someone in a way to take their morning song and turn it into joy and so I, Job's not lying here but this is just in an amazing way that he has viewed the resources that God has given me are not for me. I don't tear down barns to build bigger barns. I, God's given me new honey from the rock. He's given me a new oil when I were building a new foundation for the ground. I get an extra car that he gave me. Like, I, I, can't, I can't seem to get, I can't seem to spend the blessings quicker than I'm getting them. But that's his mindset. How can I spend them quicker than I get them? Because God just keeps blessing me. So what I do with this, and so I even make the, the deepest of the sorrowing to have a song of joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. In other words, these weren't just something that he did occasionally. This was the marker of his identity. I was, we were joking, I think a year or so ago, uh, there was this whole trend uh, among teenage girls of being a visco girl. They all had their Hydra flasks. They all wore certain shoes, certain jeans, right? They all dressed. That was their, so you'd see these girls. I'd, I'd drop off my kids at school and I see these girls. I'm like, oh, there's another Visco girl. They just had an identifying look. Now I drop them off and it's like, oh, there's the jocks. They all get out. And the big thing in the school, the local school district is that every, every athletic team gets its own backpack. So the kids have all their school backpack they wear on their back and they all have their sports backpack they wear on the front. And so they get out and these kids, they look like a paratrooper from World War II, to be honest with you. They got these double backpacks, right? But you'll see these kids, these boys, they get out and they've got the backpack on the front and it's got like two bats hanging out of it with like their cleats hanging on it. Like, just to be honest, as a 48-year-old guy, I'm like, bro, you look a little stupid. But that's okay. 
because it's their thing. It's our identifying marker. They don't, they, oh my word, I'm glad that there are no photos of me in junior high school, right? Because the way I dress, the way I look, I'm like, oh man. It was an identifying marker. And, and what Job is saying is I was known for justice. It just was his identification is the language that he's using here. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his, bre- his prey from his teeth. You just have this image like Job sitting around at dinner one night. He's got his kids there. He's got his wife there. They got four uh, orphan beggars that his servants found that, that day. And he's just trying to get their life story from them, right? So he looks at the one and he goes, hey, Samuel, so what's your, what's your life story? What's going on? Um, well, my dad died and, and my uncle refused to take care of us and and so he actually put me and my mom out on, out on the streets. My mom had to do some terrible things to try to make ends meet, and she got a disease, and she died, and I've been begging ever since. And Job's like, oh, no, sir. It is on. And so Job immediately calls his servants to him, says, get your swords. We've got something to go handle. And he goes with his servants, and they go handle the uncle justly. And restore this boy back to a land and ability to provide and to care for him. And helps and he goes, finds his mother's remains and buries them with honor. Because she loved her kid. Like that's the kind of guy Job is. He, He finds a story and he goes to fix it. Just want to pause in this moment and ask you, what's your story? And is it possible there's a king on mission to fix it? To redeem it? Are you a Mephibosheth begging like a dying dog? And so Job says, This is who I was, and, and so I used my resources to bless others, and as a result, I was happy and satisfied. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and, and that means like in my home, surrounded by people that love me. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me. My bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. And I spoke. They did not speak. After I spoke, they did not speak again. My word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouths as for the spring rain. It's like I don't have wisdom for myself. And Job would speak it. It's like he's nourishing the land. He's nourishing the, the, the dehydrated life of people with blessed counsel and wisdom. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. The light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. It's like a king. And, and what I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. It, it's like in Henry V, Shakespeare depicts the king as going before the battle of Agincourt and, and talking to his troops, but in hiding, this would be more like the king doesn't have to hide his identity. You're just so glad he's there, but there's such a companionship and a friendship. You would speak openly with him without fear of any kind of rebuke. And if you didn't know what to do, he would kindly tell you what to do. And it would come to success because so much of his life is marked by success. His life, it was his life's work with his roots going out, extended far from him, had affected good things. He used his influence to bless friends and family, minister kindness and grace to the confused and the hurting. 
Job's success didn't make him less empathetic to the hurting like his three horrible friends. It made him more tender to the suffering of others. The only way that happens is when you realize the grace you've received is, or the success you've received is grace, not earned. See, as long as you and I are convinced that I've gotten where I've got because I've earned it, then we will tend to look at anyone less successful, less calm, less respected, and say, well, if you would work a little harder, then you could be where I'm at. But when you realize everything you have is grace, it just deepens your heart for those who are suffering. And you begin to look at them and you begin to say, oh God, would you give them grace? And you begin to realize maybe the things he's given you, the safe nest that you have is intended to bless them. And that's actually how he wants to show them grace is through you not in comparison to you. And so this is how Job looks at his life. This is how he thinks about it. But, it, but as I said, and, and I tried to give us the structure, and maybe some of you have already begun to see some of the hints of this, that Job is unwittingly describing future reign of King Jesus. And so, it's, and so we want to think through it that way. And the first thing is that we see we have this love of God and others. And so In some ways, what we will see is shadows of Jesus' earthly ministry. Shadows, hints of it. Because even when Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, and he's truly God, truly man, he's born of a virgin, he lives a perfect sinless life all the way up to about the age of 29 or 30, and that's when he begins his ministry, continues a sinless life till he dies around the age of 33. Throughout that life, those three years of ministry that we have recorded, we only have other stories of when he's an infant and one story when he's about 12. Those three years, we see hints of it as he raises a few people from the dead, as he heals the blind and the lame and he casts out demons. But we have hints of it because the world was full of blind, lame, sick, possessed people. He didn't rescue all of them. He never made a journey to Rome. He never made a journey to the barbarians. He never went, he never came to North America or South America or Africa as we know these places other than a brief stint in Egypt as a baby. And so his, his ministry was localized, and, but it was a shadow of when he comes back because praise God when he comes back, all that are lame will walk and all that are blind will see and all that are deaf will hear and all that are oppressed by demons will be delivered under his rule and his reign. Now, a lot of churches that have gotten an amen. I'm going to take your whole, low, holy murmur as agreement. My heart races for the day of his return. When all is healed and made right. And every promise is made true. And so we have shadows of it from his life, but it looks forward to a day of the permanently ruling and reigning Christ. And so, first of all, this love of God and others. So Job thought of it as I had friendship with God, and I had love of others. Let me just remind you of a couple ways we see it in Jesus' life. And I'll just do it from three occasions. And those are the occasions when the God the Father split the skies with his voice. And the first one happens at Jesus' baptism. And so it's at the very start of his ministry. And, and Jesus comes up out of the water. And God speaks. And it's a thunderous cry. Matthew 3.17 records it. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Doesn't your heart ache like mine to walk into heaven and hear God say, enter in to my rest, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How our hearts long for that. I was joking with Gary the other day. Um, my car had been without AC for about, I don't know, almost a year. Finally got around to changing the AC compressor the other week. And now it blows cold like ice, right? So like right now, I don't care if it's 55 in the morning, max AC is on. It was so funny because when I finished it, I wanted to tell my dad. My dad told me many times he was proud of me, he loved me. The highest praise for my dad was he'd go, attaboy. That was just his thing. How my heart longs to hear my father, heavenly father, speak good over me, right? And so he tells Jesus at his baptism and he tells everybody around him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You fast forward though to the Mount of Transfiguration, a little bit past halfway through the ministry of Jesus when he literally unzips his humanity and reveals his deity to, to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You got Moses, you got Elijah there. It's this amazing moment. It's a mind moment and and yet in that moment god the father once again speaks he says this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him and then the last time is jesus is standing in the temple it's just about a week away from his death uh, his earthly ministry has come to this peak precipice kind of moment he is beginning to be in turmoil. You can sense that he's aware of the weakness of his own physical body. The travail of his soul is only a few days away where he will weep and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood and intense anguish and an agony. And in the temple complex, he just throws his face to heaven and he asks God to just, Father, glorify your name. In other words, Jesus, it's like in his humanity, understands at that moment. The power of God must rest upon me, even as he's truly God. And he just wants the Father to be made big. That's all he wants. And the Father responds, and it's described like thunder. You ever been just out and about, and you didn't even know, and all of a sudden there's this massive... And what does God the Father say? He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's a way of looking at Jesus and saying, we're on mission. I got you, son. Job has experienced the approval of God and was surrounded by so many children. It was a shadow of Jesus who hears along with everyone else of God's loving approval. And so people would want to flock to Job. You can imagine beggar children sharing stories of, hey, where's Sam? I don't know. He was here yesterday begging and these guys that work for Job saw him and, and took him away. Oh no, what's happened to him? Well, I'll tell you what's happened He's been restored to his land and all. And all the other beggar children would say what? Take me to Job. Can I tell you, when you've come to Christ, you sit at the table of the king, an orphan now made a son. 
It's God's loving approval. It's like, I want to get as close to Jesus as possible because I want to get as close to the Father's approval as possible. But then it's grace for covenant people. Job uses this unique and undeserved blessing kind of a phrase. It's it's honey from the rock. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is people borrow this phrase, Moses and Paul. And so it's like Moses knew the story of Job. Uh, Job predates him. Job is around the time of Abraham. So when you get to Moses in Deuteronomy 32, and Deuteronomy is marked, I think it's by, it's either four or five sermons, but they're really like songs of Moses. Uh, It's an amazing study. If you ever want to do that, Christopher Ash has a great book about that. But in Deuteronomy 32, he says this, he made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. And so you have this guy riding through the desert wilderness and and you don't even have to pack a lot because you know what? You can't prepare for every wilderness God's going to take you through. But guess what he gives you in the wilderness? Honey from a rock and oil from stone. And what what Moses is depicting in Deuteronomy 13 is the blessing that the Messiah brings on his covenant people. You need to never fear, O child of God, can I make it? Will I have enough? God said that I will clothe and feed you. It's enough. And David later will say, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. Why? Because Jesus is the one who provides. And Paul understood that in Corinthians. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's telling us Job is looking back at a time of gracious blessing for the child of God. He's looking back and he's thinking about how God has blessed him. But Jesus is the rock and he is the fountain of that blessing to all his children. Oh, taste and see that he is good. He goes on from there, though. And you want to talk about effective ministry. Job's ministry, he's caring for orphans and he's making widows sing and um, people flock to him. They don't, ha- they don't know what to do. You've ever been in a spot, you don't know what to do. You go to Job, he's going to give you good counsel. You don't know what to do. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Who we really are is who the Bible says we are. You want to know what God wants you to do? Read his word. You want to know how he wants you to function? Go to the word. Live under the authority of King Jesus. And his counsel is good. And his word is good. And his compassion is real. And his comfort is true. And his grace is for every day. And his mercies are new every morning. When Jesus is here, he gave shadows of it. He heals the blind and the deaf and the lame and the leprous. People that are outcasts, he brings them close. He's kind, gentle, meek, and he's powerful. He cleanses the temple twice, showing his zeal for justice. He can't stand the way religious hypocrites use people. He cares for widows and the dying, the outcast, and orphans. So certainly, while verses 12 through 17 describe Job, their obvious greater fulfillment is Jesus on the earth. And as we long for his return to finish that mission... Solomon actually borrows from Job's reflection in his prayer. In Psalm 72, it's it's actually a psalm of Solomon, and it's a song, and he sings about what he would want or what he looks for in a future Messiah. And so you you can't, I'm sure you won't be able to see that unless you've got like eagle eyes. 
But in Psalm 72, in verses 2 through 4, Solomon longs for a Messiah king who will be for oppressed people. May he judge people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Does your heart yearn for justice in your life? Does your heart yearn for justice around the world? There are more people living in slavery right now than ever in the history of the world. That's hard to wrap our minds around. Little girls as young as six, seven, and eight sold by impoverished parents into prostitution. If every church, evangelical church in the state of South Carolina, every church had one family who would adopt one child, there would be no more orphans in South Carolina. The need is great. Our hearts yearn for justice and deliverance. I think we have the best legal system in the world, and it's so broken. Does your heart yearn for a, a Messiah, a king who rules in justice and in equity? Solomon's did. Solomon was the wisest king that ever lived, and he yearned for a king wiser than him. In verses 5 through 11, it's a king, though, that would bless everyone. Solomon's kingdom is limited to Israel, and, and so certainly while he can bless people beyond the borders, primarily it's Israel, but he wants something to bless everyone, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's an image. It's clear that Solomon is thinking about the promises of God to Abraham, where he says, your offspring is going to be blessing to all the nations. That's what Solomon yearns for. He longs for a king, for justice and mercy. It's interesting because this is what makes him a blessing. Verse 12, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. Solomon's reign was going to end. He longed for a king who would reign forever. In Job, the most blameless man of the Old Testament, we have a foreshadowing of a more righteous one, Jesus. And Moses, the greatest prophet, takes the language of Job to long for one who blesses all of God's covenant people. We have that in Jesus. And in Solomon, the wisest and richest king of Israel, we have him taking language from Job to long for a wiser, richer, and more righteous ruler in Jesus. Job is looking back at his life, but he doesn't understand it. He's pointing forward to life for all of us. And so that's Job and that's Christ. What does that mean? It means Jesus is a king for all of us. Later, when David is run out of Jerusalem by his own son Absalom, someone lies to him about Mephibosheth. They say that Mephibosheth capitalized on this moment where David is deposed to once again try to assert himself and to rise to power. And, and he's playing on this, this kind of trope like Mephibosheth has been denied royalty because his, his grandfather Saul uh, died and his dad Jonathan died. But now David is gone and that he's saying Mephibosheth has harbored this bitterness and anger against you, David. So when David had to flee Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, that's why he stayed behind. But it isn't true. It isn't true at all. Because of his lameness, he couldn't go with David. He actually said, go saddle my horse so I can get on it and ride out with David. I'm sticking with David. And they took his horse and they ran away and left him. 
And so what has Mephibosheth done? In 2 Samuel, God, David calls Mephibosheth to him. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. I was studying this week, and I thought, you know, lots of times they have no shave November for guys. It's to highlight men's cancer awareness, these kinds of things. Now, I'm not willing to go to the not wash your clothes part. I do draw the line. But I thought, man, it actually would be kind of cool if we said, you know what? From now till Christmas, I'm not shaving. Eventually, you're looking kind of scruffy, Steve. Yeah, you know what? I'm identifying with Mephibosheth right now because I'm not shaving till the king comes back. It'd be that kind of thing. And there's some of you like, I don't know that I want to see my pastor that scraggly. Like, because I'm not going to have like Gandalf cool beard by then. Right? I can grow a little bit here. Not here. If I grew this out, I'd look like Bozo the Clown. But what did Mephibosheth look like who hasn't washed his clothes, taken care of his feet, or shaved? He would not have been a fine specimen. Why wouldn't he do that? Because Mephibosheth is saying, I'm in mourning because the real king isn't here. People that have been satisfied by the king are hungry for his return. There is a hunger in Mephibosheth that makes him grateful. He doesn't care anything about power, respect, or riches for himself. He's just filled with gladness when the gracious king comes. It actually goes beyond that because one of the guys who was supposed to be helping Mephibosheth, when he lies to David and tells him that, David makes a snap decision. It's not a good decision. He makes a snap decision and says, fine, I give you all of Mephibosheth's stuff. So now when David gets face-to-face with Mephibosheth and sees how dirty he is and how scraggly-looking he is, and he realizes this is true. Mephibosheth was true, and he was in mourning. David feels bad, and he's like, well, how do I go back on my word to give the guy all of it? He says, okay, Mephibosheth, I'll give you half of it. Mephibosheth says, David, just give him all of it. I don't care as long as long as I have you. That is the cry of someone who is hungry and who's been fed. They are grateful. When Jesus calls us to come to him, he calls us to come as poor in spirit, as hungry and thirsty, the mourning, the persecuted, the suffering. He goes on to tell us what living under his rule would look like in the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like when you and I, as Christians, when we realize we've been fed, I was a sinner and he rescued me. I was like a dying dog, and he raised me from ruin to royalty. What does it look like? Jesus tells us, he says, it looks like you will begin to let your light shine, which is the good works you do, so that people will see them, be shocked by them, and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, you will look rightly salty, and you will be a preservative to the world, and you will be a flavoring to the world that points people to Jesus. Can I just tell you that if Christians would get a hold of this concept that you have been fed and satisfied, so go find some people and bring them to the table. Then you will see the gospel go forth in the kingdom impact. It looks like loving God and others. It looks like being ruled every day by this king. It looks like obedience so that others would see and ask, why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say? And you would look at them and say, because I am ruled by a gracious king, let me tell you about him. You will be like a beggar child picked up by Job that wants to go tell all the other beggar children what it's like to, you know what? Christians who are grateful are driven to do ministry because they've been fed. But there's the other side. Neediness should make you Hungry. 
I love this quote by Lexi Herrick. She said, longing for someone is different from missing them. Missing is felt by the mind. Longing is endured by the totality of your being. Revelation 3 says it this way. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The greatest threat to a person is they don't realize or they've forgotten that they are needy. Mephibosheth was intimately aware of his neediness. And he was willing to go back to looking like a beggar and living like a beggar till the king came back. It literally means that those who are spiritual beggars, people who come to a point and they see, I'm a spiritual beggar, I'm poor and I'm blind and I'm hungry. I bring nothing to the table but my stench and my need. That's the way we're called to the gospel. None of you, nothing you bring, no wisdom you have, no riches you have, no, no stuff, no righteous deeds. And God calls you, like David calling to Mephibosheth, like Job to these beggar children. And he brings you to his table, and he takes you out of ruin, and he makes you royalty, makes you a joint heir with Christ. And that transaction happens when you see your sin, you see your beggarly status, and you call out to God, Oh God, I'm a sinner, would you save me? And you come under the rule and the reign of that king. The law of God helps us to see our neediness. It tells us that when we lie, it's because we're liars. We lust because we're lusters. We're, we're angry because we're angry people. It's our very identity is the problem. It starts to expose our neediness. And what Revelation is telling us is whether you claim Christ or not, when you and I chase love, money, respect, pleasure, things here, we can't be satisfied in God because we've already chased our satisfaction somewhere else. If you were a beggar and you'd gone 24 hours without food, 48 hours without food, 72 hours with nothing to eat, and your belly is just gnawing in you, and I came to you and I said, hey, come to my table, I'm going to feed you till you want no more. And as we're walking to my car, you see a half-open bag of Skittles spilled on the ground. Do you grab them up and start slamming them in your face? Why do we fill ourselves with more of this world when all it does is convince us that I'm not blind, I'm not poor, I'm not naked, I don't need? Lost people need to live in the awareness of their spiritual neediness, but Revelation tells us so do saved people. There is a better king than David who reaches out to you when you're not looking. Mephibosheth wasn't looking. Who is generous in your neediness, who gives grace you don't deserve. There's a wiser king than Solomon, and Jesus will rule forever. There is a better leader than Moses who is honey from the rock for you. There is a man who suffered more than Job, and it's Jesus, and he suffered for you. He took on your sin and my sin and he bore the sin of the world on the cross and he died for you and he calls you now like David saying, come to me and be fed at my table. Be ruled by me and know my blessing. And I just would ask you today, do you live as a grateful, rescued one? And if you haven't been rescued in that way, do you live as one in your neediness and will you come 
today to sit at the king's table. Father, we thank you for the reality as it is in our neediness that we see you. Oh, Father, may you help all of us live in the intimate awareness of our neediness. May we live in the reality that only you can satisfy. And then, Father, may we be satisfied in you.